what struck them and what struck us is there were two standing ovations in during the film. Unsubtitled. Out of the silver shadows and into the Klieg lights of Movieland comes Nitrateville Radio. This is Michael Gebert in Chicago with Nitrateville Radio, the podcast that talks to people doing cool stuff in the world of classic era films. Brought to you by Nitrateville.com, the discussion site about movies from the classic age from all around the world. Alice Guy Blachet was the first notable woman director, and arguably the first notable director, period. I'll talk to Pamela B. Green, director of the new documentary Be Natural, the untold story of Alice Guy Blachet. And we talked to two great friends of Overlooked Films, Dennis Doros and Amy Heller of Milestone Films, about two of their recent projects, a 1948 documentary that got its maker blacklisted, and a new 4K restoration of the influential Soviet documentary and all-around wild ride, I Am Cuba. So keep up with the dialectic of history as it relates to vintage film by never missing an episode of Nitrateville Radio. Subscribe at iTunes, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or Stitcher, comrade. At the very first showing in Paris of the Lumiere Brothers films, two of the people in the audience were Leon Gaumont, a camera manufacturer, and his secretary, a woman named Alice Guy, who may well have been the first person to ever tell her boss, well, what I really want to do is direct. Beginning at the studio bearing Gaumont's name, in the next 25 years, Alice Guy Blachet would make over 1,000 films, at least 22 of them feature length. But like so many early film pioneers, and maybe more so because she was a woman, her work was largely forgotten. Pamela B. Green tells this story in her documentary Be Natural, the untold story of Alice Guy Blachet, narrated by Jodie Foster. She recounts her long life and shows clips from her films. But more than that, this visually inventive documentary shows what it's like piecing together the mystery of someone's life, tracking down relatives in America and finding lost scrapbooks and letters, while showing how archives at the same time track down and preserve the films that let us see this woman as an artist. I spoke with Pamela B. Green not long after the film played at the Telluride Film Festival. Um, I had seen um, a TV show about women pioneers in cinema. It was just like a little segment, and there was a mention of her uh, being a director and having her own studio and being a producer, so I'd never heard of her, and I found it intriguing. Um, I am an entrepreneur myself, so I 
uh, am attracted to underdog stories and people that are determined. And um, what I liked about her is that she was determined and an artist at the same time. So uh, that's to be to be talented as an artist and to be an entrepreneur is very rare. It's either one or the other. So that was definitely uh, an interesting factor, and the fact that this happened so long ago and you never heard of her. I mean, I personally had never heard of her. Yeah, I think she kind of belongs. I mean, even if people know silent film, what they tend to know is post-1920 silent film, and that's right around the time that her career was winding up. So she does sort of belong to that prehistory that people just don't pay a lot of attention to. I think it's just not covered as much, and things papers are missing, and it wasn't properly recorded or documented. Nobody took it seriously. It's it's very hard to start something when nobody believes in it, and it's very hard to finish something as well. Um, and for her, I think being uh, a, a maker of content is amazing within itself, but to be there at the beginning and uh, be a part of moving the medium forward, that within itself is probably one of her biggest accomplishments. I always remember something that Charles Musser, the early film historian, said is that we tend to look at old movies like they're all struggling toward becoming modern movies. And that's not necessarily the case at all. In any case, they didn't know that that's where it would go. And so she's really there. I mean, truly at the very, very beginning, uh, kind of trying to figure out what can you do with this device. But she continues. See, that's what's interesting about her. Most people, they start off and then they fade off. She continues into, you know, Hollywood version 1.0. She makes it all the way to Hollywood. So she kind of reinvents herself and constantly is rolling with the punches with the changes of the medium and the industry as a whole. 22-year career is a long time, regardless if she's going to sound or not. She made, you know, all these different shorts and then went into features and constantly um, finessed her, you know, bag of tricks, if you will. So what were the films that you initially saw that... uh made you think that this was worthwhile as a project? Uh, I liked Ocean Wave a lot. I mean, to me, that is very, very cinematic, and it doesn't look like something from that year. So that was shocking. And um, I really liked um, The Drunken Mattress and uh, Consequences of Feminism. I thought was unbelievable to be able to think that, that way and to do things in that fashion, in that style, so early. Um, And I loved The Empress uh, as well, which is a film that wasn't available. Uh, But I, through my determination, made it available now so people will be able to access it. It, They're both, The Empress and um, Ocean Lakes are absolutely gorgeous. There's there's many other ones that are beautiful, but those... um, struck me and and just seeing some of her film stills you know even though we didn't get to see the films i i felt that she definitely had an eye yeah the the consequences of feminism is one that that i think is really interesting i mean obviously in silent comedy there's a fair amount of you know drag comedy usually you know someone like uh 
uh, Wallace Beery or Fatty Arbuckle dressing as a uh, you know as a woman and getting laughs out of that. And this is really interesting as as kind of a I mean a complete reversal of that in a way that's very modern, in that the women play men's roles not not for exaggerated comic purposes, but really as kind of the thought experiment of, you know, what would the world look like if, you know, women acted in that way, you know, acted like self-assured, powerful businessmen or, or things like that, um, which, of course, is what she was, essentially. I think what I find interesting about her is that she looked at herself within society and she portrayed some of her struggles um, within her films, but also she kind of took a, uh, a snapshot of what society was at the time and infused that in her films and, um, you know, made a funny of it in a way so she can get away with some of the, you know, the rawness and the edginess of it as well. So, yeah, I mean, let's talk about her her personal progress. I mean, she literally started as a secretary, uh, the 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 kind of the equivalent of beginning in the mailroom at William Morris, I guess. Uh, and she went on. Uh, she's, I guess, really just kind of took on a supervising job because that's all that existed, I guess, is, you know, you're, hey, we're going to use this camera. Someone has to be in charge of what we're going to point it at. And from there developed ideas of how to direct a movie. I mean, really, arguably, the first person to to actually direct a movie as opposed to just record something. She's one of the first, you know, because you know these historians are going to come after me. But um, <laughs> I think it's it's very the story is very modern, even though it happened a long time ago. I mean, you work at a company that sells equipment, and you're not going to wait a couple of years to try it out. You want to know what the medium can do. And you're a salesperson because there's people that are walking in and out that um, want to use this stuff and you want to keep the, the doors open. It's like, oh, you could do this, you could do that, etc. So not only do you have to be salesy to keep the doors open to help the company, you are creating content that can entertain people but also show the, the capability of the medium. And if it sells and people want to buy that stuff, then that keeps the doors open as well. So even though she's uh, a secretary, she's not thinking that way. She's like really a collaborator of Gaumont of, you know, how can we keep this place open and keep going because she wants to secure her job. She has to make a living. So she's definitely looking at it from, you know, entrepreneurship and uh, and technical demonstrations and then the creative aspect comes in because she, you know, is a natural storyteller having read books as a child and, and growing up, you know, uh, as a daughter of a bookseller and uh, in a convent and having all these uh, adventures as a, a little girl traveling etc. All those things get infused into her storytelling, which creates uh, entertainment versus just, you know, technical demonstration. So she is really somebody like today who's ambitious. You know, kids today, they create content, they post it, they get the views, etc. People try all these different things 
because of the tools that are available. So she was at the right place at the right time where she had a specific amount of tools, but she connected the dots how to make something of it. And again, that's um, a definition of somebody who is an innovator. They, they keep trying and tinkering with the medium. No matter what the result is, they keep going until they get results. To me, that's kind of like the first class of Silicon Valley of Paris, 1895. <laughs> because it, to- it totally is. You know, they're all tinkering. They're trying to figure it out. It's a race. Who's going to get there first, et cetera. And it's very similar to what goes on in Silicon Valley, constantly taking all these different mediums that are available and developing them and, you know, the competition, et cetera. So when computers were first coming about, people didn't think that people would use computers at home. Nobody saw a future, et cetera. So um, it's very, very similar to the, the, the tech world. Well, I think with her, I mean, the first time I really saw a number of her films together was, again, Charles Musser did the Before the Nickelodeon programs that had several of her Solax films. And seeing a bunch of different people's films together, I mean, she rose to, to the top pretty easily in terms of how she directed actors, how she looked for that kind of, you know, heart-touching moment. I think she's one of the first to know what to do with actors, I would say. Actors and also a, a great writer, you know, um, because, believe it or not, the scripts that exist and setups all the way back to 1906 that, you know, I put in the film, so... She's thinking about the production design. She's thinking about the placement. She's thinking about the composition. And these are all the things that she was learning at that photography place before it becomes, you know, uh, the Gaumont Company. So she's using those tools, which is very important as a creator because you can direct anybody that you want. But if you don't have a good story, like you just said, and you don't understand composition, you're not going to capture that emotion as well as, you know, directing the actors themselves. All the pieces connect, and I think, again, that's what makes her different, and you're right. Her films, even though they're short, she's able to tell, a, you know, beginning, middle, and end, and if you put them against some of the other filmmakers, she does definitely stand out as being uh, more modern in her approach of uh, getting the performances. She winds up marrying a guy named Herbert Blaché, uh, who, despite the fact that his last name is Blaché, is English. Um, and they end up coming to America, and that's where they founded the Solax studio in New Jersey. Well, he's actually English and French descent, but okay. and he spoke German, but I wasn't going to, I mean, how much, you saw how packed yeah. this <laughs> for an hour and 42, there's a lot in there, so... You know, after a while, you don't want to blow somebody's brains out with all that information. But um, the success, at one point, that was the biggest studio in Fort Lee. And they were just turning out, you know, content, content, content um, every week. A lot of films, you know, were getting out the door. So they were very successful. But also, with success comes... The, the change in the industry. So anytime there's a change and you're going from one reel to two reels to three reels, the way the stories are being told, the way the stars are being used, the distribution, 
all these things um, play into that. Well, and it, it turns out Blaché was perhaps not the uh, the best choice for her to marry as well. I mean, I, I didn't know that they had uh, were the ones who kind of first brought Lois Weber into the industry, but she's one of several that he apparently had affairs with. And so eventually Solax and her marriage and her career all sort of hit the rocks roughly at the same time. And the burning of the studio and the influenza and issues with investors and Edison. You know, it's a combination of a lot of things, but, you know, how much a person can endure. Right. And also she's, she's older. You know, back then, she's almost 50 years old at that point, and... You know, that's ancient right. back then. And you definitely don't want to hear an old lady, you know, 50 is not old, but back then, uh, telling you how to make movies. And the assembly line of everybody having a role in filmmaking where before there weren't, the roles weren't created, it just became much more of a factory. So she doesn't fit into that model of the new Hollywood at the point, at that point, they they wanted somebody to either just direct and not get involved in the script, or you know she couldn't be a producer. It was divided up into all these different slots, and women's uh, roles in the industry became more and more marginalized because the men finally saw that this was uh, a business that could make money. Nobody really took it seriously. So I think as the business evolved and more roles were created, um, yeah, it's, it's less about somebody like, you know, Alice. It's more about um, male filmmakers and, and dividing up the roles. Industry changing and um, technology is changing. Everything is changing. And it's just, um, she's old hat. One of the lines on Lois Weber is that at a certain point, essentially what she was doing, making these kind of high-minded social pictures, had helped raise the image of the industry into a kind of middle-class thing, and they didn't need her anymore because that was done. Um, I don't get the sense that Guy Blachey's content was socially minded in the same way. I mean, she seems to be directing a lot of different types of things. She's kind of working in all genres. Do you, do you think there were, that she had a particular point of view in terms of content? I think she just, she liked telling good stories and um, basically uh, putting her lens on social issues. I mean, obviously she's talking about immigration uh, she's talking about labor conflict. She talks about anti-Semitism in some of her films. Um, there's a lot of films where w women are at the helm. So she does, you know, reversals uh, like that as well. I mean, she did make a, a movie, which is kind of a remake of the consequences uh, of being a feminist called In the Year 2000, where women are at the helm. And she's funny. I mean, she's really, really good with comedy and twist because obviously that was a big deal back then. But um, I think that's what's great about her too is that she had that depth of dealing with different genres and always trying new things. You know, and she and she was uh, she liked a lot of um, uh, stories 
based on novels, many, many novels. You know, Edgar Allan Poe, Emile Zola, um, Wilkins, I think. Uh, I think it's Wilkins. Wilkie Collins. Yeah, thank you, Wilkie Collins. Um, Now, she goes back after her Hollywood time, goes back divorced with her daughter to France, and lives a long time. I mean, lives until 1968, which, needless to say, is a very different film world than uh, the one she started in. But what's what I thought was really interesting, I didn't know anything about, was that she was working from an early point on trying to find and and preserve her own films. Kind of too late because I don't think they. It doesn't sound like very many were found while she was still alive. But she was focused on that, and part of the reason for that was that nobody was giving her credit. They were just sort of writing her off because she was a woman. Um, there's a legitimate question asked, you know, well, was she really directing or was she the studio head? I think if you see enough of her films, it's pretty obvious that there's a consistent directorial, you know, voice there. Silent cinema at the time, nobody's really taking it seriously. They're honoring her, but then they're not sure. And um, it's still being kind of investigated. But um, this film, I think what's different about it is it's 80% was new material that nobody's ever seen before. So, you know, they misattribute the life of Christ to her assistant, but two weeks before the film got into Cannes, I got those slides that show her directing the life of Christ. Nobody's ever seen that before. It's been sitting there since 1906. She just wanted to be recognized. She wanted to be recognized as somebody who was responsible moving the medium forward and being the first woman film director. But honestly, she's so much more than that, but she didn't think that about herself. She just wanted to be known for that. Yeah. You know, what's really sad too is she's at that FIAF event, which is the Federation of Archives, and these are all heads of archives. They don't really know what they have in their vault. Right. And um, so basically she's surrounded by people that... She doesn't know has has their uh, has her films, and they don't know that they have her films. They don't know that the films are sitting there, and they were donated before she before she died. So it's kind of like this detective thing within herself. You know, she's a determined person as well. So then there's the of the detective part of trying to find her films, and then there's the parallel of me. You know, I'm just trying to find the pieces that she was, was looking for that she missed. It's very difficult when you do a, a, a documentary like this because everybody can approach it from a different level. And even in academia, you only cover a sliver of somebody's life. It's very difficult to cover the whole. Um, I went after the whole because I wanted to make sure that I listened to what she was saying, you know, in all her writings, etc. And... She gave me clues, and I decided to, you know, go after them. You know, most people wouldn't, you know, call everybody in her address book. Or right. <laughs> and et cetera. I wanted to prove to historians that there was more to this woman and that I was going to find new material to put her where she belongs and for people to believe, you know, her accomplishments more in France than in America, because America accepts her much more. 
but to find information from France, that was something that it was a long shot. Well, and I really liked, I mean, there there are a number of stories where, as you say, you start calling people in old phone books, trying to track down, especially in America. I mean, you think of, you know, she spent the rest of her life in France, but she left these bits of family in America and you turn up a surprising amount of material, you know, boxes of old pictures and stuff like that that were unknown to anybody that, that document so much of her career. And there's that great story about the, uh, I think it was the, the cameraman. Well, basically, in the address book, there's so many people with that last name of Pin. So when you see that, you're like, hmm, that means there's, there's this possibility for descendants. So when I started calling uh, this woman, Michelle Seymour, who her maiden name was Pin, she's basically saying, this, you know, sounds familiar, and my grandfather was a cameraman, and, you know, that's probably how they knew each other. And she starts calling all these people. She doesn't realize that she's related to Alice. The whole time they're calling and we're talking to everybody, and she keeps introducing me to more people in her family. These are all relatives of Alice, because... The grandfather is Alice's nephew. Right. So when we go to the house, I didn't realize that Tante Elise meant Aunt Alice. Could it be any more like of a dream come true to find actual descendants of this woman that have all this material that dates back to her career at Gaumont and in the U.S. and letters between, you know, Alice's mother and the nephew to continue to tell the story of things we don't know that happened. So, you know, a lot of this stuff cut out, but there was so many calls. I don't have anything. I don't have anything. Yes, you do. No, I don't. Yes, you do. You know, years of like making them look in the attics and <laughs> you know, negatives and all this stuff that really humanizes her, but also gives us a picture of what happened later because everybody what they write about Alice is the same trivia things over and over and over and over and over again. I was not interested in that. I actually ignored that completely and just went on my own path to find new material because I'm a detective by nature. <laughs> so I like new material because, first of all, when you're trying to make a film that's completely donation-based, you want to show your funders that you're making discoveries. So the amount of discoveries are ridiculous. Of course, I can't all make it in the film. But I picked what I thought was the best to shed some light on her and give her a face as a, as a human being and not just, you know, a couple of lines and just showing a couple of movies. Right. And her body of work, you know, finding new films, etc. So... It's finding the family, understanding that, using the document to continue to tell the story and get a sense of place, et cetera, putting her in context. So many different layers. All right, so you've been to both Cannes and Telluride with this. How's, how's the reaction been? It's been pretty amazing. Um, both places got a standing ovation, um, and in Doville as well, but I was, I was not able to make it to Doville, but... Um, People really are in love with the film. So we've been very lucky and it's headed to New York uh, next and then to London. But yeah, 
that's that's where it's at right now. The audience is really connect um, male, female, younger, older. Um, I, I really think it's a, a story. It's an underdog story of somebody who went out there and did things and you know didn't get the proper recognition, in my opinion. And the only other thing that I'll say is is that you know there's an Alice in all of us and. Um, it's, it's a story about an artist and an, an entrepreneur, and we can all relate to going out there and try to make a living and try to make something of ourselves and, and, and to go for it. And, you know, not to be fearful, because if she did it, then we can definitely do it. Natural, the untold story of Alice Guy Boucher is currently playing the festival circuit. It will play the New York Film Festival on Sunday, October 7th, and the BFI London Film Festival on October 11th and 21st. I'll have links for these screenings and the film's official site, among other things, in the show post at nitrateville.com. Michael Gebert's podcast is an absolute treasure, a necessity for anyone who treasures cinema. This is my favorite podcast, interesting guests doing innovative things to preserve and present classic film. If you're an old soul who loves classic films and filmmaking, then this is the podcast for you. These are some of the things that people have said in reviews of Nitrateville Radio at iTunes. And when it's a late night and I'm facing trimming all the ums and you knows out of a 45-minute conversation, they're what give me the strength to keep making this podcast, knowing that people like you will find it worth listening to. So if you want to, you know, keep me going before I, um, plots, log into iTunes and leave a review of your own. Besides encouraging me, it helps others discover Nitrateville Radio, too. So do it today when you're done listening to this episode. Thanks. Can anybody's life be beneath notice? Only if you have forgotten what it was like to be small and to have a sadness too big for your size. Despite everything, there are times when a knowing seizes us, when we must view the steady turning of the earth through its days. Despite everything, cradling the hope of life, cradling it deep.
That's a poetic moment about motherhood and childhood from a 1948 documentary called Strange Victory, directed by Leo Hurwitz. What you can't see that audiences then would have is that the mothers and children are of different races. The film is an avowedly leftist treatise on how the very things we fought in World War II, like racial prejudice, were still alive in the land of the victor. I'm guessing the strange in the title is a direct nod to the strange fruit in the Billie Holiday song. At the Nitrateville site, we discourage political talk because, you may have noticed this, it tends to go crazy on the internet. But films are political. Talking about Alice Guy Blachey as a woman filmmaker is political. And my next guests, Dennis Doros and Amy Heller of Milestone Films, often release films that reflect their political interests. From socially-minded silence by women like Lois Weber, to films by independent black filmmakers in the 80s and 90s. So this podcast is going to tread where the site dares not, and talk about two films that Milestone is involved with right now, which reflect leftist Cold War era viewpoints. One is Strange Victory, and the other is a new restoration of a 1964 film by a great Soviet filmmaker going back to silent days, Mikhail Kalatazov. That film, I Am Cuba, has been an inspiration for modern films, from Boogie Nights and Casino to The Revenant. I spoke to Dennis Doros and Amy Heller recently. Let's talk about a couple things, but first, congratulations, Mr. President. Oh, you are, yeah. <laughs> you are the head of the AMIA. Tell me about that, because it's one of those things I, I hear about, but I can't say I know a lot about it, and I don't know that many people do who are not in it. So, Yeah. Um, it's really, the first thing is everybody can be in it. The Association of Moving Image Archivists was started specifically for any individual interested in the preservation, access, and presentation of moving images. So we have collectors, we have scholars, we have archivists, we have lab technicians, we have studio executives, we have just about everybody. Distributors, distributors filmmakers, filmmakers. From every walk of life. Yeah. Scholars, film scholars, uh, historians. So if you're interested, you anyone can join and uh, participate. And it's uh, over a thousand members now from around the world. We, were, we are represented by 30 countries, 29 or 30. I'm not sure the exact number on that. But it is really, along with the conference, there, which is every year in November, uh, and about 600, 700 people attend, we have uh, a digital asset symposium in New York every June to discuss the digital dilemma, which is going to be more serious than silent films preservation. I think a greater loss of digital-based films will be more than the 78% of silent films lost in the next 100 years. Uh, we have uh, small conferences around the world. We have a journal that comes out 12, twice a year. It's a extremely active voice in this world for to preserve moving images, and that includes VHS, and it includes digital, it includes everything. I love the organization. I've been a member for 22 years now, I believe, and Amy's been a member and coming to the conference for the last five. Less, less than that. Four. Let's go with four years. <laughs> yeah. Um, when, when our kid went to school, you know, when our kid went to college, then I started going. Um, yeah, it's also spun off a lot of cool things like uh, Home Movie Day and uh, or the Orphan Film Symposium, which is about orphan films or films that are 
um, include like industrials, home movies, um, and films that the ownership, you know, independent films. And so they've done, and both those, um, both the Orphans Film Symposium and Home Movie Day have rediscovered and preserved a lot of really cool outside the kind of Hollywood mainstream um, mold. So that's really another cool aspect of the, of, uh, I mean, there's, so people preserve things like film strips and uh, industrials and commercials and uh, we've preserved, you know, like student films, things like that. I guess I would say that is one of the things that Milestone specializes in is, is, odd bits of our film heritage that other people weren't necessarily looking at a lot of the time. But there are two that, that you're working on that were particularly interesting to me and kind of interestingly parallel in that they both sort of have roots in Soviet silent cinema. Uh, first one is the 1948 documentary Strange Victory. So tell, tell me about that. So we uh, acquired Strange Victory when we were working with Barney Rossett, who's since died, um, who's the founder of Grove Press. Um, on uh, acquiring the rights to uh, film, film that was a short film written by Samuel Beckett and starring Buster Keaton. Um, Barney produced um, only two films in his life. One of them was film but with Samuel Beckett and the other was Strange Victory, um, directed by Leo Hurwitz. And um, we were really lucky that Barney's material turned out to be a fine grain from 1948. Um, and a nitrate fine grain from 1948. And when we watched the film again, we were just struck by how um, painfully timely it is. We couldn't wait to get it out so that people could start watching it and thinking about the parallels between the post-war period and the present. And to go back on the original acquisition, we were very lucky because Barney Rossett and Leo Hurwitz had a falling out probably the week after the film opened in 1947. <laughs> and it continued for the rest of their lives, but we were lucky because... Uh, Barney Rossett, of course, represented uh, the production side. The direction side, Leo Hurwitz, had died, sadly, a few years ago. And the estate, um, partially run by Manny Kirschheimer, the filmmaker and documentarian, uh, was one of my mentors. So both sides were able to get together to allow us to compare their materials, to allow us to distribute the film. It's something that we were very lucky that we were in the position to be able to do. All right, well, let's talk about first, who was Leo Hurwitz? Leo Hurwitz had started off in 1931 with the film and photo league. He was very important, uh, very interested in social justice, very important, interested in the use of film for education. And he wanted to fix the world. And he thought that he could do it through cinema, as did the rest of the film and photo league. It was a left wing, if you want to say, um, was collaboration a- among some great filmmakers. And out of that came some great documentaries of the 30s and 40s, like The River and The Plow That Broke the Plains. And Leo was interested in not only in education, but aesthetics. He thought that any film that was going to educate had to capture the interest of the public, had to grab them. And he thought that film aesthetics were very important to making a film that is just not reportage. It's just not documenting a scene. You had to make it interesting. And that was through beautiful camera work, through incredible editing and just real thought. Yeah. Behind the real films. poetry. 
I mean, it seems like at least his side of it, there was a lot of influence, uh, not only obviously from Eisenstein, but Vertov. N- not being sort of one-dimensionally didactic, but this kind of mosaic of images that prevent- presents a point of view in a way that kind of s- stops you a lot, makes you think about, okay, why, why this? Why this at this moment? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And, of course, based on people rather than famous people. The- which, which comes out of the whole United Front movement. I mean, you know, it's the idea that it's not just leaders who are important, but workers and individuals um, from all levels of society. During the war, he made uh, Native Land with Paul Strand, is that right? Yes. Right. Yeah. Um, and that was re- that was successful and, and well-received. I get the impression Strange Victory was very much not well-received. It bombed. The voice of, the, the image of Stalin behind every, um, behind every frame was one of the reviews. reviews. You know, 48 was not uh, 43, you know? I mean, this, at the end of the war, you know, the Cold War began. Also, we were a nation in victory that we had beaten the Germans, that we had won the world war, that we, are, we were the power in the world. And we didn't want to hear about social problems in our own country. We wanted to push them aside to ignore them. And the fact that the American government wanted to do this as well, um, especially in their battle with the Soviets on who treated their people better, um, was, let's just say the people did not want to come back from World War II having sacrificed their friends and lives and to want to confront their own racist views and their own... Well, and there was a tremendous campaign against the left in the post-war period, starting with the Taft-Hartley laws, there was a, a real effort to to drive any communist-leaning um, labor organizers and labor executives out of the labor movement. The CIO um, uh, expelled all the left-wing unions and formed their own uh, equivalent unions. And, of course, the left-wing filmmaking did not exist in these years partly because they had been banned, they had been prohibited. And, and we know that a lot of um, film projects were financed and supported by the State Department. And of course, as the State Department's focus changed, so did the funding and the um, focus of um, both independent and Hollywood filmmakers. Now, one feeling I had during the film was, I mean, as well-made as it is, it doesn't exactly escape the frequent idea that the left is kind of a buzzkill. I mean, you know, we had just won World War II, but I mean, we, here we were in the flush of victory. And I think there were films that were addressing some of these social issues in a, in a fairly positive outlook. I think of the, the Frank Sinatra was the house we live in things like that. I mean, that sort of appeals to the better angels of our nature about some of these issues. That is not the case with Strange Victory. You can think about um, Hollywood responses that were much more nuanced and much more negative. Um, Since You Went Away um, uh, is a really very bleak view. Uh, Or you can even talk about, um, um, oh my God, I'm having a moment. Crossfire, Gentleman's Agreement. Uh. Oh yeah, Yeah. there you go. But they were... Yeah, I mean, there was a lot of, uh, uh, I think, you know, he was not out of step with the times in 
being in being deeply concerned with social issues in the post-war period and in the in, in the plight of returning vets. Now he focuses specifically on an African American vet, but the the situation of returning veterans in World War II um, was much darker, I think, than maybe we you know the the um, you know the greatest generation uh, kind of cliches that we now. Um, say, I mean, the man with the golden arm is a little different version of uh, right. returning World War II and, veterans with Frank Sinatra. And let's talk about the house we live in, which is we have to band together. We are all one race. We are all one people so we can beat the dirty Japs. Um, <laughs> and we have to point out at this time that the Japanese were being interred in camps around the country in impoverished conditions. So Leo Hurwitz and the left did face these issues, and let's face it, did any Hollywood film at that time um, deal with the issues of lynching of black people in the South, of the internment of black um, citizens, uh, primarily to fuel the um, industrial uh, machine of the South? There were a lot of things going on that are just coming out now that Leo Hurwitz was aware of in 1947, and he wanted it to face reality. This film, I think, is a great film, and it's an amazing film to watch because of such artistic integrity and such truth. And there is an enormous amount of poetry and beautiful visual imagery in the film. But he is dealing with racism, anti-Catholicism, anti-Semitism. He's dealing with real issues of the time that were making the newspapers, but were not making it into Sometimes. Hollywood films. Yeah, sometimes making into the newspapers, sometimes not. And the people that he was talking about that are in the film, the right wing, or should I say the agitators of racism. The white nationalists, the KKK, the, uh, you know. He wanted to talk about it, and he does deal with it in the film. So this is something that, that a documentary does even today that a Hollywood feature is. You're not finding this in your typical Hollywood feature today either. So what happened with the film? You you have a 1960s uh, epilogue that was added to it, which brings in the civil rights movement, has uh, still shots of like Bull Connor hosing down protesters and things like that. So what was the history of the film after its initial release? Well, first it showed at Madison Square Garden in 1948. And as people were leaving and throwing away their flyer to tell about the event. The FBI was collecting these flyers and cataloging who was there. And as the film was released in 1948, Leo Horowitz was black, was... He was blacklisted for... He was put on the the, um, the Red Channels blacklist. Red right. Channels was a publication that um, everyone in the film and video industry, film and television industry received, and he couldn't get a job. He had to work under a front name um, for 12 years. This was a very costly film to make. Um, Barney had been born wealthy. He used his family's money to make this film, and it lost a lot of money, which was probably the sin for the family. <laughs> and so he came out of film. He left filmmaking for good and for that time and went into starting Grove Press, the famous publisher of... Lolita. Many things. Many, many things. Much... much um, uh, risque at the time, and maybe even now, material. I just want to say one thing about one of the reasons it cost so much was that they bought a ton of footage. And one of the things I think that's so, for me, astonishing about the film now is that 
how great that footage looks. Because it's not footage that you have never seen before, but because it was purchased in 1946, and this is a fine grain, very often some of the images that you see in the film, you've never seen that clean. You know, you've never seen that beautiful. So I think that's one of the things about this restoration, in addition to everything, that's so exciting is that the images of the war itself are rarely ever been more beautiful or, you know, more well, pristine, and all, more horrifying, yes. all of the above, you know. And a lot of it was hasn't been seen before since. Right. I mean, they were buying from just about everywhere. All over the world. So they they had a falling apart when the film failed and they couldn't get together on this. In 1962-63, with the rise of civil rights and some hope in this world that there would be some social justice, um, Leo probably purchased the rights from Barney Ross at Neither Family is Sure, but he did a re-edit of the film and added a prologue to show the hopeful progress that we've made in 1963 of the terrible events that are happening in the South, but the rise of civil rights and the hopes that we will have for the future. And so he was excited by this. And so he brought it out in 1963. And the film failed miserably again. (laughs) (laughs) And I have to say is that when we brought it out last year, it was successful, but none too successful either. People still don't want to face these right issues. Leo decided that the original version was the one that he wanted to be the official one, the 48 version which is oh. why that's the way we released it on the... He, although he had attempted this other re-edit and adding the prologue, when, when he we, decided it was not, that was not the version he wanted it to be, like, for per- perpetuity, you know? We didn't know this until we compared both estates material and we got the 1963 negative and prologue, epilogue from the George Eastman Museum. They kindly lent it to us. And we realized that the editing was different. We realized that the epilogue was different, of course. And so we mastered the epilogue because we thought it was important. And then we found out on the Kansas says, do not use, use 1947 version. So that's how we found out that Leo had reconsidered and went back to the... His original version. Yes. Soy... Cuba, ya Cuba. Una vez aquí desembarca Gdata, здесь высадился Христофор Колумб. Él escribió en su diario. Он записал в своем дневнике. All right, well, let's go halfway around the world here to another filmmaker who comes out of uh, the Soviet silent cinema movement. Um, I'm not sure I've ever heard his name pronounced, so I'm just going to try it. Mikhail Kalatazov? Kalatazov? How do you say it? Kalatazov. Kalatazov. Okay. I can also never spell it and get the A's and the O's in the right way. I know. I have to check every time, too. Um, But he... um, The Russianization of his name. He actually was Georgian. Interesting. And um, his real name is like Kalatovizi, hmm. but um, he, but you know, it, at the time, and his family has gone back to the Georgian version. Uh, his his grandson is a filmmaker. Oh. As was his son, yes. Yeah. So this is someone who he was working in the silent era. I remember much hilarity on uh, alt movie silent when TCM showed Salt for Svanetja. 
which is a tad didactic, one might say. Uh, nevertheless, beautiful images. Beautiful, yeah. But came, you know, some, many years later, 30 years later, came to international fame with The Cranes Are Flying. And the only films of his I've seen, besides The Silence, only ones I've seen are the ones around Cranes Are Flying, Letter That Was Never Sent, and I Am Cuba After It. And, you know, clearly, I mean, just a, a visual master, a little bit like Orson Welles or somebody in terms of these uh, yeah. beautiful lyrical images that one doesn't necessarily associate with Soviet filmmaking. I, I think you're kinds of fans of I Am Cuba a little. Yes. <laughs> We spent 23 years with this, and this is our third restoration of the film. We first saw I'm Cuba. It had shown Tom Luddy and uh, Bill Pence had brought in an unsubtitled print, which showed at the Telluride Film Festival in 92, I think. And then uh, Peter Scarlett showed it at the San Francisco Film Festival in 93. And when it showed at the Castro in 93, in 1993 at the San Francisco Film Festival, three of our friends, like as they're in the leaving the theater, called us. And what struck and said, us, and said, oh my God, you gotta do something with this. <laughs> what struck them and what struck us is there were two standing ovations in during the film. Unsubtitled. <laughs> but people stood up and applauded during the film for these two bravura scenes that were so astonishing and amazing that Nobody really could believe their eyes. So we actually got, it was like a one light off a Steenbeck um, version just to look at. On VHS. On VHS, of course. That was 1993 um, from a friend of ours at the festival. And so this is, you know, a shitty version. And it's a one light off a Steenbeck. And it's unsubtitled. And we watched and said, now how do we get it? So this was before the internet, of course. Um, and so we had to find a way to reach Mossville. And so Dennis literally went back through like a stack of old varieties looking for a fax number for Mossville. <laughs> and so then that became, began the beginning of a long fax correspondence back and forth with Mossville. They didn't trust us. We didn't trust them. You know, we were, there was much concern. Dennis had experienced uh, Russian prints that, you know, literally fell apart as you unspooled them um and we were concerned about that but eventually we got a fine grain and three prints and a mag track and a mag track and um you know we opened the film well first we spent i don't know how many thousands of dollars but we more than we had we were we were broken in debt yeah when we opened the film and as we're walking down the street (laughs) to get the new york times because the pre-internet to get a review, you had to go to the newsstand by you at 11 <laughs> o'clock at night the day before right. to get the first edition of the New York Times that came out at 11 o'clock at night. And as we're walking the six blocks to the newsstand in New York, Amy's asking how what job we're going to get next because we're dead. It's going to bomb. It's going to be horrible. It's going to be terrible. Yep. And we're going to lose our shirts and we're going to have to get jobs again. And this is about the fit. This is 1995, five years after Milestone started. And so we're discussing what kind of new jobs we can get. And we buy the paper and turn to the arts section. And three quarters of the page is devoted to this amazing, remarkable film, I Am Cuba. You have to run and see it. And that's when we realized that our job was saved for at least another year. Uh, Janet Maslin wrote this incredible review of 
basically what you see now is this mind-boggling, epic, incredible filmmaking telling a, po a tone poem. It doesn't have much of a storyline. It has four short stories um, that wind together through the individuals of this group of Cuban students mostly. And that this tone poem, two hour, 20 minute tone poem with 500 lines of dialogue, most films have 3,000, 4,000 lines of dialogue in two and a half hours, that this nearly silent visual masterpiece and lines started forming around the block and Milestone was saved. Um, since the film came out, filmmakers, many filmmakers have made, have done scenes that they call their I Am Cuba scenes. There's a scene in Casino. There's a scene in Boogie Nights. The opening of BoJack Horseman <laughs> is an homage to I Am Cuba. Well, so, let's, yeah, let's talk about the, the scene, particularly the one that Boogie Nights is the most obvious, uh, you know, in debt to, which is the pool scene yeah. early on during the Batista part of, of I Am Cuba, which I have to say, the movie kind of is a pretty good uh, commercial for Batista-era Cuba yeah. at the yeah. beginning there. Well, this is the why, certainly this is why so. the Cubans hated it, the Russians hated it, yeah. because the Batista Cuba has a lot of gorgeous women in bikinis drinking martinis and it's highly taking a dip in the pool. And he highly photos so, it. Yeah, so this film, by 1995, 31 years after it may, uh, had been made, when we went to Moss Film saying we want the rights, they said, why? You don't, why do you want this crap? I mean, literally, they said, I don't understand why you want this film. And well, so it had been why. denounced by the Soviets. It had been denounced by the Cubans. So, first of all, my favorite thing we just learned yesterday was uh, when the cranes were flying came out, one of the reviews said, yes, the cranes are flying. The camera cranes are flying. <laughs> the co combination of the director Kalatazov and the cinematographer Yurosevsky were magical. They were visionaries. They had this unspoken communication where they knew what each other wanted. And they were so experimental. And that's another thing the Russians didn't like is that they were going crazy with these special effects. Um, they were shooting on glass, on panes of glass while they were pouring mercury down this glass to get some shots that were out of focus and that were wavering. Um, the opening of the film and in a number of different scenes where the palm trees appear white against like a black sky, that's infrared film. That he had gotten from the Stasi in East Germany. That's right. <laughs> so he was trying things that nobody else was willing to try, the both of them. Well, and what's really striking to me about the pool shot, so it's a continuous shot all around this party on a pool that travels down a couple of no, different no, levels. Yeah. Let's, let's begin it where it begins. It begins on the top of a, of a um, like a, a high-rise building where there is a band playing and a beauty contest. And women with holding numbers in bikinis are watching and a band, a rock band is playing. So it begins there with the, with the beauty contest and the rock band. It then proceeds down the side of the building, it then winds its way through a cocktail party. At and, a poolside. And at the poolside cocktail party. And then it, after following a number of different people, a rather beautiful statuesque woman in a bikini stands up, takes off her hat, walks into the pool, and it follows her among the tables and into the pool and underwater.
actually went on and came up out of the water. <laughs> and they thought that was too much, and they cut it. The editor said, enough already. And oh, cut yeah. it. <laughs> But I have to think, too, this is Soviet filmmaking. So, you know, the camera is probably the size of a refrigerator or something. And they're like, there's some guy having to hold it all through all of this. Actually not. They were using French debris. They were using a portable camera that the French New Wave was starting to use. Oh, okay. Uh, so this is 1960. They, they came over the day of the Bay of Pigs incident. <laughs> so they were... This is a few years after the portable cameras and the portable sound equipment was, though the film was shot mostly wild. So they had set up a portable camera, one of the debris, in a lucite box that had a periscope for air. Uh, because when you take the camera in a lucite box down below the surface, it wants to jump up, it wants to bob up. So they had to have the air escape so the camera could go underwater. It took several tries before they devised this. And it also had two plastic handles so the cameraman could hand it to the next cameraman to go down the shaft as the other cameraman's racing around to pick up the camera at the poolside to go through and down underwater. So they were... Yeah, so the thing that we have, to, since for people who haven't seen the film, the thing that we have to uh, emphasize is this is an unbroken shot. Yes. There are no cuts. It's a five-minute shot. Yeah. Now, that's, it's that's, one of many in the and, film. And that's where the first standing ovation was at the San Francisco. I'm sure. I'm sure. After that ended. I think he was influenced like everybody else with Bicycle Thief and The Little Fugitive and everything else was coming out at that time. Jean Roof. That was using portable cameras. Chronicle of a Summer. But I think Yurisevsky took it way beyond everybody else. Yeah. Yeah, certainly to a, just a more Baroque level of stylization. Kalatozov had been making these radical films in 29, 30, 31 ways. Salt for Svenetia. Svenetia. And then he was making Nail in the Boot. And supposedly he got in trouble with the KGB for another incident that we haven't verified yet. So he was stuck as a Russian bureaucrat. Right. Um, he spent a lot of his career as a bureaucrat. At, and at a, Moscow. And a spy. He came to Hollywood for two years during yes. the 1940s. He was a spy. Though right. it also looked like he was partying with the chaplains and with everybody right. else. And his favorite film was... Uh, Penny Serenade and um, that Sonia Henny film. I can't remember which one. Although he um, did bring um, Citizen Kane back to yeah. Moscow when he came back. So I don't know how much of a spy he was as much as having fun in Russia. He did write Probably a book about both. it. Yeah. He, yes, Holly, he wrote Life in Hollywood. Yes, he wrote a so, anti-Hollywood anti book. But he was, he, was, he was a bureaucrat for Moscow and for the Russian government for about 20 years. And he was making films about the army and the success of the Holly, the Soviet uh, Air Force. He did a number of pilot films. So he was stuck in bureaucratic Soviet propaganda hell. And of course, this is during the Stalin era. If he didn't do this, he would have went the way of Eisenstein and others and probably would have been sent to a camp to die. So this was his form of survival. But in 1957, he comes out with the Cranes of Flying and it goes to Cannes. And it wins the Palme d'Or. It becomes this international sensation. And this was the time of the Brussels World's Fair, where the Soviets and Americans are having compete in pavilions to say whose lifestyle is best. And this Soviet film of a, of a love shows a human side of the Soviet Union, shows a very moving side of the Soviet Union. So the Soviets all of a sudden fall in love with this probably 60-year-old director who had been trying to make films of his own 
for the last 30 years. And so all of a sudden, he is beloved by the Soviets. He has all this power. And of course, Stalin has died. And there is a bit of a uh, thaw in Soviet politics towards filmmaking. So with the letter never sent an eye in Cuba, Kalatazov and Yurisevsky all of a sudden have carte blanche on what they want to do. They are the heroes of Soviet filmmaking. Um, and the international heroes. And so The Letter Never Sent is a film that probably never would have been made under Stalin, probably would never have seen the light of day. And I Am Cuba, of course, was allowed because it was a Soviet-Cuban uh, propaganda film, supposedly. And so they had real free reign to have artistic license to make anything they wanted and however they wanted to make it. Yeah, and with, with free reigns, they, you know, they took the bit in their in their mouths and went, you know, I mean, really went with it. And the letter never sent is probably, of the Soviet films, his greatest achievement. I mean, film in cinema-wise, I think The Cranes Are Flying is a more entertaining film, but they're both really magnificent achievements in cinema. And I Am Cuba, they just wanted to take it a step farther, and where Letter Never Sent is shot literally in Siberia, and Tarkovsky was greatly influenced by it, and a lot of his films are the sons of Kalatazov. Um, I Am Cuba, they come there, the cinematographer, uh, Sasha Kalzadi, who's the assistant cameraman, says, imagine I'm graduating from uh, the Moscow University where uh, Edouard Tis was the um, instructor. He was Eisenstein's cinematographer. And it is cold, and there is 20 inches of snow, and I land in Havana, and it is this beautiful paradise in beautiful weather, and the first shot he's working on is the bikini shot of the bikini contest. He's in heaven. Kalatazov and Yurisevsky obviously fell in love with Cuban culture, too, and the beauty of the area. And there is a sensuality to I Am Cuba, that was very unsettling to the Soviets, to say the least. And at the same time, the um, beauty of the Batista government unsettled the uh, Castro followers. And yeah. Castro was there. Castro was this enormous lover of cinema. He was, as they're cutting the film and watching the dailies, Castro is in the next screening room at a kayak watching Hollywood movies. Right. So... There is this great love for cinema in Cuba that Ikayak created some of the great masterpieces of all time under Castro, including Memories of Development. Underdevelopment. Memories of Underdevelopment. So there is this great love for cinema, and they're bringing in the Soviet Union's greatest director, greatest poet, Evgeny Yevtushenko co-wrote this script with... Um, Enrique Barnetta. Barnett, one of the great Enrique Cuban poets. So there is this great merging of Cuban and Russian um, talent to make this film. And they had real high expectations for this film. It was the most expensive film shot in Cuba to that point. Right. But, I mean, apparently what the Cuban feeling was that it didn't celebrate the achievements of the revolution. You know, it's, I mean, they wanted a film that would then talk about how the, what the revolution had done. And then this is not a film about that. This is a film about the romance of the revolution. A little bit sentimentalizing peasant labor and things like that, I would say, which maybe isn't what Castro would have necessarily wanted to 
tell right. the world. Maybe a little of that. I think that's right. Above all, it is a celebration of filmmaking, of the glorious joy of that filmmakers can express, of all the tools and the things that filmmakers can use to be expressive. So, um, you know, it's kind of a kind of a graduate course all by itself. And as you're saying, going back to the silent era where the image is king, um, as I said, there's only 450 di- lines of dialogue in two and a half hours. Most of this film is a silent movie. Yeah. I mean, it even when he's... silent and then and sound was added. And I never thought about it, but w- during the explosion scene where the husband is calling out to his wife, Amelia, Amelia, it's sort of like uh, sun, Sunrise. Uh-huh. <laughs> he's calling out to his wife. I think it probably was influenced by Sunrise, that scene. Yeah. And, and the moving camera has never been more beautiful. And to me, that's the difference between just expressionism and cinema expressionism, is that the camera can move. And when the camera moves, it's just thrilling. It's swooping through space and time. Um, and then, you know, he went on to make um, The Red Tent uh, with... Claudia Cardinale, and the, which was a French, was an Italian um, Russian co-production. I Am Cuba was the end of his, of the Soviet lover, Soviet Union government's love affair with Galatasaray. <laughs> uh, they called him onto the carpet and Yurisevsky for being a formalist, which yeah. is basically having cinema that's more beautiful than the message of Soviet greatness. And pretty hard and, to argue with that charge, I would say. Yeah. Yeah, um, if you read the charges, if you read their defense, they're basically saying, yes, we love cinema and we wanted to make something exciting. All right, so you're back at this film for the third time. What is the third restoration or whatever you're doing? What does that get you? For one thing, we've never approached the film digitally. Um, And we have this fine grain that we got in 1993 from Russia. A fine grain is uh, is a is a very high density print that comes off of the original camera negative. So it's very close to the original camera negative and it's very high quality because it's very dense. You have more information in it than you would have in a projection print. So we had this, this really remarkable preprint material um, and we now have all these digital tools. And the fact is that the first two times there is I don't want to tell. There's faults in the film that were driving me crazy. That maybe I think only one other archivist to notice because the film is so beautiful, you don't notice the flaws. But there is a fluctuation throughout the film that was terribly annoying to me. And when you don't see it, the film is oh my god! It has it looks almost three dimensional now. The use of 4K and the way extensive cleanup of the film because. Because it came off the camera negative and because it was an unpopular film, there was a lot of scratches. There was a lot of dust. I think they made their prints straight off the camera negative in 1964. So it had a lot of flaws from the printing of it back when it was first produced. That the fine grain had a lot of flaws, too, that Metropolis Post in New York has spent. I don't want to know how much. A lot of time and our money. Uh, Well, money is beyond. The, The work they have done is so extensive that we can't possibly pay them for what they have actually done to it. it we couldn't afford it. They're, 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 and the experience of trying to do uh, um, dust reduct, you know, um, dust busting and cleanup on a film that has nothing but moving in, moving camera, I think they're going to do a, what they're talking about doing a, 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 a presentation a, uh, at, at a, a, a about it because it's so difficult. Well, let me try to explain to 
to you because a computer can usually clean up 60, 70% of the dust and scratches on a film. Uh, but that's because it is measuring a usually a fairly stable image. Static, yeah. That when a scene is shot, there's usually, I mean, there may be two cameras, three cameras, but the movie camera is not moving for two and a half hours. It's usually moving. So a computer can clean up 40 to 60% of a film by itself, but you can't do that on IMCube because the... Every frame it's moving. The background is constantly moving. The people are constantly moving. There was no way they could do, do it by computer, so they had to do every scratch, every piece of dust manually. And that's something that they were not prepared for when they gave me a price quote, nor were they prepared to do until they got into it. So, you know, a lot of thanks to uh, Metropolis Post, Jason Crump and Ian Bostic for going, oops, and still continue on. And they've been spending probably 12 hours a day for the last 45 days, 60 days to make it look beautiful. So when do you think we'll see this latest version of it? It's premiering at the New York Film Festival October 7th. It will be on screen at the Walter Reed. It's going to open in New York and L.A. probably in early, 2019, in early um, 2019. One of the things I should just quickly say before we finish on IMCube is how much trouble we've gotten yes. for distributing this film. Yes. We got it from Mosfilm. They had co-produced the film. We got it from Mosfilm because it was illegal at that time and still partially illegal to deal with Cuba. Cuba. So we got it from them and... The U.S. government, every time they see the name Cuba on one of our checks, investigates <laughs> us. Uh, the federal government did an investigation after Amy paid for the subtitling of the film in New York. Even though it was 10 years after our release, the Chase, Chase Bank canceled our bank account. And uh, there was an investigation about us. And when we brought out I Am Cuba, the Cigar Box Edition, we created a false Cigar Box Edition. And PayPal refused to accept payment for this for 15 years, saying it was Cuban cigars. <laughs> Despite me saying, no, look, open it. It's, it's DVDs. So we've been investigated. We've been, PayPal refused to accept payments for it. We'll probably get in trouble again. I wanted to make a joke and have on the poster, um, the revolution starts now. But we thought that we'd probably get tossed out of the country. Right. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks to my guests, Pamela B. Green and Dennis Doros and Amy Heller. Strange Victory is out on home video now. I Am Cuba's 4K restoration will also play the New York Film Festival on October 7th and will be in theaters and on DVD and Blu-ray later in 2019. Music is by Kevin McLeod, with a little help from Tchaikovsky and Dalib. Subscribe at iTunes, Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or Stitcher so you never miss an episode. And again, help us all out by leaving a rating and a review at iTunes or Apple Podcasts. I'll be back with a new episode in a few weeks. 
Thanks.